want to talk to you about Passover, seeing as how that's what we're about to do. Passover starts uh, tomorrow at sunset. One of the things that is said in the Torah is that you're to teach your children. The whole purpose of the Seder every year really is to teach the children. So you gather your children around your table and you involve them in it and you teach them. The reason for that is our stories define who we are. Everybody has a story. And the thing that has kept the Jews and the Hebrews together all these years is they share a story and they don't let go of it. Now, one of the things that's happening in the United States right now, if you've been paying attention, is there's sort of a concerted effort being made to erase our story. That's deliberate, and the point of the Passover is to keep the story alive so that you remain a people with a common story. Now, one of the things that happened when the church separated from the synagogue is the Gentiles lost part of the story. The Gentiles got separated from the feasts. So they still have a couple of vestiges. Easter, which sometimes, and most times probably, coincides with the resurrection. But they've lost all the feasts of God. They've lost the concept of sacred time and sacred place. God sets up sacred times, Shabbat, the Moedim, the feasts. He also sets up a sacred place, which is where he puts his name. What's happened today in Christianity is we've lost track of that. I can remember decades ago now when I was in the Episcopal Church. And if the pastor had a long sermon, you could see foots tapping out there because the Broncos are going to kick off here pretty quick. And if we don't get out of here, we're not going to be there in time for the kickoff. What that is, is a loss of the concept of a sacred time. And one of the things that the Jews, the Orthodox at least, have been really good about is they have been tenacious about the Shabbat, and they've been tenacious about the Moedim. And that's one of the things that keeps them together as a people. Now, one of the things that I have said very often, and I will say again to remind you who don't remember, history is prophecy. Now, what do I mean by that? If you read the scriptures, what you discover is things that happen to one generation happen again in the next generation and happen again in the next generation. The pattern of exile, for example. The pattern of Abraham going down to Egypt and doing the little lie about who Sarah is. That repeats in his son. So history is prophecy. And what I want to talk about is something that Rabbi Foreman was talking about. I listened to him last night. It was very, very good. My wife sort of shook me by the stacking swivel and says, you need to listen to this. So I did, and it was excellent. But it falls in with the theme of history being prophecy. And what he does is he's talking about the Passover. But instead of starting with the Passover, he goes back to the burial of Jacob. And for those of you who remember your Torah, having gone over and over and over and over again for all these many years, you should. You remember that when Jacob died, or before he died, he made his son, Joseph, swear 
that he would take him and bury him in Canaan as opposed to being buried in Egypt. Now, won't go through the whole story of how that happens, but one of the things is when Jacob dies, he is embalmed. Well, that's a big deal in Egypt because the Egyptian burial rituals are very different from the burial rituals of the Hebrews. The idea in Egypt is you're going to need your body in the afterlife, so what we're going to do is we're going to preserve it so that it's available for you when you go to the next place you go. Hebrews, on the other hand, bury in a cave or in the ground, and the whole purpose there is to expedite going back to the dust. Dust you are and to dust you return. So very different ideas about how to deal with a dead body. And the fact that the Egyptians spent considerable time and resources to embalm Jacob indicates the high regard that they held both Joseph and his father in. This is not some thing that you would do with a peasant or a shepherd or something. This is something you do with a high-born person. So they're treating Jacob with a great deal of reverence and respect out of respect for Joseph, who saved them from a famine. So anyway, when the burial procession takes off, several things happen that are repeated in the Exodus. First thing that happens is they leave their little ones and their flocks behind. Now, when we get to the Exodus story, when Pharaoh starts negotiating to let them go for a three-day weekend, one of the things that Pharaoh says is, you can go, but leave your flocks and your little ones behind. Same exact situation. Similarly, when they go, in Jacob's story, all of high-born Egypt is going with them. And they have got an honor guard of Egyptian cavalry, and specifically chariots and horsemen. So they all go up as an entourage to Canaan to bury Jacob, and they have an escort and an honor guard. Well, in the Passover story, when they leave, they go by themselves. And they don't have an escort and an honor guard, but Pharaoh then gets told they're leaving, and he hats up his cavalry and heads after them. So you have horses and chariots go after them instead of with them. But it's the same wording, horsemen and chariots. And in this case, they're there to do damage, so they perish. In the case of Jacob, they are there to do honor. And interestingly, one of the things the Torah says is God says, I will get honor through the destruction of the Egyptian cavalry. Now, what's honorable about that? Well, the point Rabbi Foreman makes is, we had an honor guard before. This is going to be the honor guard, too. Only it's not going to work out nearly as well as it did with the Jacob story. And then the final thing is, in both cases, the Canaanites look at all this and say, Wow! You remember when the Jacob procession gets up to the threshing floor of Atad, 
the Canaanites are looking and says, wow, what's going on here? I mean, you've got all these Egyptians mourning, and you've got this honor guard, and you've got this whole entourage. What is going on? Same thing happens at the Exodus. When the Canaanites hear of what has been done, they, wow, that God is really something special. So you have all sorts of parallels between the Jacob story and the Exodus. And I'm telling you that history repeats itself. History is prophecy. So where are we going with this? In the Jacob story, there is one camp. And it is a camp of Israelites, and it's a camp of Egyptians. And they all go together. In the Exodus story, there are two camps. And there's a cloud between the two camps. Remember the cloud and the pillar of fire as they were leaving? And God separates the two camps. Well, that's not what God really wants. What God really wants is one camp. And Foreman then takes you to Isaiah, which I thought was really very good. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6. And the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what's going to happen in the future is again we're going to have a group going up to Canaan. And that group is once again going to be one camp. As it was in the case of the burial of Jacob, as it was not in the case of the Exodus, but will be again. So the pattern is the same over and over again, but the object of the exercise is one camp. That's what we're trying to get to, or what God is trying to get to. Now, Israel is made a nation at the Passover. That's when they become a nation. And they have a specific mission. They're not just, well, you're my firstborn and I like you guys a lot, so you're going to be my special people. Cool. No. They have a mission. There's a reason. In Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, we have this back-and-forth shuttle negotiation that happens between God and Israel by the vehicle of Moses. So God trucks Moses up to the top of the mountain and says, all right, I want you to go make this offer to Israel. Moses goes down and says, all right, this is what he's offering. They say, we'll do it. Moses then trucks back up and says, they'll do it. And then we get the Ten Commandments. Well, what I want to read to you is what the offer is that God makes. It's important. Obviously, it wouldn't be in the Torah, and he wouldn't have made it. Of course it's important. Exodus 19.3. The Lord called him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and here we go, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's the offer. You'll be my special people, but most important, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, question is, what is a priest? What does that mean? If he says you're going to be a nation of priests, that must mean something. Besides, you get to dress in fancy duds and, you know, wear the gold plate on your helmet and all that kind of stuff. There's more to it. So what does a priest do? First thing a priest does is he teaches the people the word of God. So the job of a priest is to speak the words of God to people and teach them. The second thing that their priests are supposed to do is they are to maintain a separation of holy time and holy space from common. So the job of a priest is to, to say, this time is holy, that time is common. And there's nothing wrong with common time, but it is separate and distinct from holy time. The job of a priest is to maintain that separation. Similarly, the job of a priest is to maintain things that are holy and spaces that are holy separate from things that are common and spaces that are common. And again, there's nothing wrong with being common. Most of everything is common. It's not bad. It is just separate and distinct from that which is set aside and is holy. And so the job of a priest is to maintain and explain that separation, time and space and things. And then the third thing that a priest is to do is they are judges. So whenever there's a dispute that arises between two people, what they are to do is go to the priest, and what the priest will do is listen to the situation, apply the word of God, and render a judgment. That was one of their jobs. So how many times does it say in Scripture that you shall judge nations? I will gently suggest that Lots and lots of Christians say we're going to rule them with a rod of iron, but no, that's not our job. That's his job, Yeshua's, not ours. When it says you will judge nations, what it says is you will be a nation of priests, and part of your job is to be a judge. The idea, then, of Israel becoming a separate nation is that they've got stuff to do. They've got a reason for being. Now, on Tuesday... In Bible study, we spent an entire hour on the Lord's Prayer. I was figuring we're going to get through this in about 15 minutes and go on to something else. No, we were there for an hour. It was a good lesson. I enjoyed it. But one of the things about the Lord's Prayer is there's a phrase in there, and you can, I am sure, all repeat it from heart because everybody knows. I'm reading it from Matthew and New King James. So Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What that says is, we want your kingdom to be on earth. 
your kingdom come. Come to us. Come down. And what, by the way, did Yeshua say during his entire ministry? The kingdom has come. The kingdom is near. His entire ministry was preaching the kingdom. Now, when it was rejected, he switched over to prophecy, but that was his initial mission and message, is the kingdom has come. So the prayer is, we want the kingdom to come, and the second thing we want is his will, God's will, to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as I said before, what happened when the synagogue and the church separated is the church lost a great deal. So did the synagogue, don't get me wrong. They lost the sense of who the Messiah was. We lost sacred time, sacred space, and we lost the idea of bringing heaven down to earth. What the emphasis is today in Christianity is getting people up to heaven. It's what evangelism is all about. You've got to go out there and save souls so they go to heaven, right? Now, and don't get me wrong, that's an important deal. But that is entirely different than the Hebrew understanding. The Hebrew understanding is tikkun olam, which means repair the creation. You broke it, you fix it. So the idea of the nation of priests, if you will, is we're supposed to bring heaven down to earth and we are supposed to fix the earth so that God's will is done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's what the prayer says. So, the fact that the church has lost that aspect of their mission, and there's a term for that called pietism, which is to say we are focused on making sure that we are saved as opposed to we are focused on making the earth as like heaven as possible. And again, don't get me wrong, Scripture says we ain't going to get it done and eventually the whole place is going to get reformed, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the job. And what's happened with Western civilization, since the church lost that, the civilization that was created in the West based on Christian principles is falling apart. Because the church is no longer focused on maintaining a Christian civilization as they were in Europe for a thousand years and as was transplanted here to the United States by the pilgrims. This was set up as a nation under God. And interestingly, about the time that we were set up is when this shift from repairing the creation to personal salvation began to occur about the 1700s. And so what we're doing is we are living on a stored legacy, if you will, that lasted for 1700 years and now in the last three or 400 years has started to decline. And what we're seeing is the acceleration of that decline right now because we have lost the sight of being a nation of priests. And by the way, isn't that one of the things that is said in the New Testament? You will be priests. And one of the things that the Sunday church says, we're all priests. You've heard the riff, there's three orders of priesthood. 
the order of Melchizedek, of which there is one member. There's the order of Aaron, of which there are a number of members, but you have to have a father who was a son of Aaron in order to be one of those. And then there's the priesthood of all believers, which is a third order of priesthood, and they don't mix. They're different. But the point is, priests are supposed to teach the Word of God, maintain a separation between holy and common, and judge. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, there's two errors. I just talked about error number one, which is being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And that's what pietism does. Being focused on getting to heaven, being focused on the reformation of all things, being focused on the end times instead of repairing what's here. That's the first error. The other error is doing it without God or trying to do it without God. And that's socialism. And one of the things that socialism does is it promises the things that Torah says are good. All the things that socialism promises look very much like what Torah says to do. But it's a satanic counterfeit. It's almost right. And because it's almost right, it is very seductive, especially to Jews. That's why so many Jews are liberal and socialist, because it looks like it ought to be able to work. We ought to be able to make it work. And look at what it promises. And that's trying to bring heaven down to earth without God. Tikkun olam without God. In other words, doing it in human strength as opposed to doing it God's way. So we have two errors. The Sunday church has given up on the world. The synagogue is trying to repair things, but it's not doing it in a way that is consistent with Torah. Both of those are errors. And what we want to be is in the middle where we're trying to repair the creation, but we are doing it with God's word, and we are doing it in the light of the fact that he is the creator, and he is the king of kings. Right, now, Easter, which the Sunday church is going to be celebrating a week from now while we're celebrating resurrection and first fruits. Easter only makes sense in the light of Passover. Now, what do I mean? What I said at the beginning was history is prophecy. And I gave you three examples. Jacob's burial, Passover, and then something yet future, where Jew and Gentile come together on the mountain of the Lord. All three of those are the same event. The thing that the resurrection does, and, and again, don't get me wrong, the Sunday church's focus, I will suggest, is incomplete. Now, salvation is wonderful, but that's not my subject right now. The thing that the resurrection of Yeshua did is allowed the Gentiles to come in. That's the big deal. I, mean, I say that's the big deal, as if the other isn't. I don't mean to diminish it. But the point of the exercise here is to prepare the way for the Isaiah passage, 
which is to say Gentiles get to come into the kingdom of God and Gentiles get to be sons of God, children of God, and we are setting up the prophetic end game that Isaiah is talking about. It's a part of a pattern that starts clear back with the burial of Jacob. And it's the same pattern over and over and over. And we are in the middle of that third pattern. We have got the ability to become children of God. And those of you who are here, I have no question you have accepted Yeshua as your king. And I have no question that you are, in fact, children of God. But a lot of people aren't. Again, one of the things that secularists will yell at you is, we're all God's children. No, that's not scriptural. The ones who are God's children are Israel and Gentiles who have accepted Messiah. That's the way it works. So, what's all that mean to you? What I will suggest that it means to you is focus on repairing what we have damaged. Focus on keeping our story alive. Both the story of the Passover, as you meet with your families and your children, tell the story. That's what you're told to do. But also, as you look back upon the United States, which was founded by people who believed fervently in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you had Calvinists and you had Quakers and all that kind of stuff. They snarled and fought just like anybody else. But they were all united in the fact that we are part of the kingdom of God. And they set the place up on godly principles. If you look at the Constitution, it's Torah 101. So as you're telling stories, by all means, tell the story of the Passover to your children, but also tell the stories of the United States. Because we tried, attempted to set ourselves up according to Torah principles. And that's important and that's being destroyed deliberately. So tell the story. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your grandchildren. Tell it to your Sunday friends. And see if you can convince your Sunday friends to turn back and regain an understanding of sacred time and sacred space. Because they've lost that. That's what they lost when they separated from the synagogue. Remind them of that. It's important. Tell your story. 